Uh, I wonder if you've ever felt outnumbered before. You've ever felt uh, it's particularly obvious for you that you were in the minority of a group. You're at a barbecue uh, and it's only women, for example, uh, and then eventually it feels good. It's kind of a relief when, uh, when a couple arrives and you, and you can talk to another bloke, uh, for example. Uh, sometimes, uh, yeah, it can be really uncomfortable to be outnumbered and to feel like you're out on your own. Uh, you can easily, actually, uh, minority groups can easily become victims uh, in, uh, in, 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 among larger groups. Uh, and it's, it's safe to say that uh, the Christian faith uh, is a minority position. Uh, it's a minority position. Um, not so long ago, we had this character who was all over our TV screens, Ned Flanders, um, he was the church-going man next door uh, in the long-running uh, show The Simpsons. Uh, he was a bit of an irritation. He was pretty naive and idiotic, but he was basically harmless. Uh, and, and he was uh, maybe even good. You know, he had some sort of consistency in his character uh, that, um, that made him wholesome, uh, even if he was a bit of a pain. But things have changed. Uh, and so, you know, the Christian butt of the jokes now uh, is, is, isn't caricatured so much as someone, you know, who's well-meaning but a bit dumb, but more and more people are painting Christians as being cranky, uh, judgmental, uh, and sometimes even having dangerous ideas. And so there's no doubt that the public perspective of Christianity has been changing even within our lifetime. I mean, obviously it's changed throughout uh, the generations, but even in our lifetime we've seen a shift. Now, don't get me wrong, very few of us actually face any real persecution, I think, uh, as individuals here in Australia. You may feel vilified or offended by some of what you see on TV uh, and some of what you hear in the media, but when it comes to personal relationships, I suspect your experience is much like mine, uh, that uh, in actual friendships and in physical workplaces, most unbelievers are actually quite happy to have Christians around. We're not really ill-treated face-to-face but we're definitely outnumbered. Uh, and, and I, at least, am feeling that more and more. And if you've been around for longer than I have been, uh, then I imagine you've seen even more of a shift than I have in my short life. Now, James writes his letter, the book of James, uh, is a letter written by James to a pe- group of people who are outnumbered and in many cases downtrodden. Uh, they are a minority group. It says that he, in verse 1, it says that he writes this letter Uh, to the 12 tribes in what he calls the dispersion. Uh, Now, this term, the dispersion, or or, sorry, starting with the 12 tribes, uh, this indicates that he's talking primarily to a Jewish audience, sort of going back uh, to the 12 tribes of Israel. Uh, So this is a Jewish audience or, or, sorry, early Jewish converts to Christianity. Um, And the fact that he calls them, uh, he says that they are in what he calls the dispersion, you can see that in verse 1, means that basically he's referring to them as people who are scattered and outnumbered. You know, they are the small fry in the Roman Empire. Um, And so what might a leader write to such a group of people? What might James, the pillar of the faith, write in his letter to these scattered, outnumbered, battling followers of Jesus? Would he encourage them to get out and get ahead? Does he give them a promise that their challenges will end if they can just strike the right formula of spirituality and strategy? Uh, Does he tell them that they ought to band together and rise up to overthrow their oppressors? He doesn't do any of those things. Instead, James writes to sharpen their character. 
He wants to see outnumbered people less concerned about the fact that they're outnumbered and more concerned with what they can be doing in their life within the power that they have to follow Jesus with all their heart. What James chooses to write betrays what he values uh, and in fact what God values is that God values character over comfort. And that's how I'm going to summarise these verses uh, in chapter 1. But, you know, I also think it's a pretty good theme uh, to cover a lot of the book of James because this is the context he's writing in. Uh, And what he uh, goes on and on and on about uh, is that he wants us to be people uh, who are true to our core and to our faith and who don't just hold the right things in our heads but who do the right thing with our hands and feet. And so it's all about character over comfort. Now today I'm going to touch on just a few things in this. We're going to ask the question, James who? Who is this James that's written the book? Uh, But also we're going to pull out uh, what I think are the the four main uh, items of character that he mentions, joy, maturity, wisdom and faith. So who is James? There's one verse in the Bible that lists three different Jameses. Uh, There's four in the New Testament that are named, but this one verse lists all three. It talks about Jesus has called his disciples and he chooses chooses 12 of them. One of them is James, who's the brother of John. Uh, Their father is Zebedee. You might have heard James, son of Zebedee or John, son of Zebedee. Uh, There's also another James. It was a common name, the son of Alphaeus. Uh, And there was uh, a man named Judas, and it just turns out that his father's name was James. And the reason uh, that James is mentioned is because we've all heard of the other Judas, Judas Iscariot, uh, who betrayed Jesus. And so that's why that James is mentioned. So was it any of these three Jameses that wrote the letter of James? You know, we can't be sure, uh, but I think it's pretty safe to rule out Judas's father. Uh, He sort of gets mentioned just just to rule out Judas as being the bad one. Um, It's also probably unlikely that it's James, uh, uh, James, son of Alphaeus, uh, because he doesn't get mentioned too much else. So yes, while he's an apostle, uh, he doesn't really loom large uh, in, the, in the later writings of the church. Um, it's also unlikely that it's James, son of Zebedee, although he was one of Jesus' inner circle in those early days, uh, he was put to death quite early on uh, after Jesus' resurrection and so he probably wasn't around for long enough to have written the letter called James. So this leads us to the conclusion, uh, or at least the strongest theory I think available, uh, that it's a different James. Uh, it's the brother of Jesus, the other James that gets mentioned uh, in the New Testament. Uh, it says uh, in Mark chapter 6, uh, it mentions some of Jesus' brothers by name. James, Joseph, Simon, and again, another Judas, another common name. Um, and what's beautiful is, if it is the case, and I, and I think it probably is the case that it's this James uh, that has written uh, this letter, it really paints a picture, a beautiful story of redemption. In fact, even if James isn't the guy who wrote the letter, we still see in the pages of Scripture this story of redemption from James, the brother of Jesus. Because this is how it started out. Not even Jesus' brothers believed in him in the earliest days of Jesus' ministry. In fact, for all of the days of Jesus' ministry. Not only did his brothers not believe in him, there were times when they deliberately tried tried to foil him and to get in his way and to stop him from doing what he was doing. And so we assume that James was in this crowd. Uh, He didn't like what his brother was about. But then, Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians. He says that after Jesus came back to life, he appeared to James, his brother, uh, and then later to the other apostles. 
And so Jesus, uh, who James had seen being put to death, appears to him and James has this life-changing moment, much like uh, Paul uh, in the New Testament as well, who meets the risen Christ uh, and who does this complete 180, turns completely about face, uh, to the point where James now, uh, in writing this letter, he says that, I am James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. So he doesn't speak of Jesus so much as his brother, but as his Lord uh, and as the Christ, the Messiah, the one who uh, God had promised would come to save. Uh, And there's uh, other mentions to James, the brother of Jesus in the New Testament. Paul writes this in his letter uh, to the Galatians. He talks about James even on the same league as the other apostles because Jesus had appeared to him, risen, uh, and he talks to him later on in the same book as as a pillar of the church uh, and one with authority in those first days. And so it seems most likely uh, that this is the James who has written the letter. In fact, the church has sort of gone along with this uh, from day dot. Uh, And so, James who? James, the brother of Jesus. Character, what does he promote? Well, in these early pages, uh, or these early verses, joy, maturity, wisdom, and faith. So first joy, he says in verse 2, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. How's that? A variety of trials? Well, all of them count all joy. Doesn't that smack you in the face as being uh, an enormous challenge right off the bat? How do you consider trials to be joy? Well, I do want to acknowledge straight up, in fact, that probably most of you, most of us are quite happy to recognise that it is possible to feel two feelings at the same time. Uh, It's possible to feel happy at the same time that you feel sad, Uh, for example. Just because you are going through a challenging circumstance doesn't mean you can't also laugh or feel some measure of joy at the same time. We all know these things are possible. But James says to count it all joy. Now, um, yeah, it's possible to have both joy and sadness uh, at the same time. One of my all-time favourite songs makes me cry almost every time I hear it. And it makes me happy at the same time. In case you're wondering, it's Deeper Water by Paul Kelly. Uh, Last year, Nat and I attended a funeral on Zoom uh, for some friends in Brisbane who lost their baby. Uh, And uh, have you had that same experience where funerals can have both a sense of grief at the terrible loss, but also a sense of wholeness, uh, where even for us, as we were on Zoom, we felt like we were connected uh, with our friends who were going through uh, this terrible tragedy. The grief doesn't ruin the wholeness. In fact, the challenge of the moment can almost amplify the wholeness uh, and that closeness uh, and that deep sense of having connected over something pure and, uh, and meaningful in that moment. If, so it's not the case Uh, that grief and trial and hardship needs to spoil our joy. Uh, In fact, it's our joy that should be spoiling uh, our our depression. Uh, And it's a joy uh, that uh, spoils our despair and our sadness. So I don't think when James says that you need to experience all joy, count it all joy, I don't think he's saying that we need to paint on a smile and eliminate any sense of sadness at all. In fact, we know that Jesus himself uh, experienced grief and sadness in his life. Um, that's, uh, 
James is promoting a lifestyle of authenticity. He's not saying we need to be play actors and hypocrites, um, but we, there should be in our lives a sense of joy uh, that permeates everything and spoils everything else uh, so that we never sink into absolute despair and hopelessness. But you need a perspective if you're going to have that. You can't just drum joy up from nowhere. You need to know that your trials matter. And that's why he talks about maturity then uh, in verse, uh, what do I say, in verse 4. He's, um, and even before that in verse 3. We don't just count it joy, we don't just um, turn on joy when times are hard, but we consider these things joyful because of what they will produce. So he says, uh, count it joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know in verse 3 that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and that's a good thing. And then in verse 4, let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Perfect and complete, lacking in nothing, which I've summarised here as being mature. Uh, and don't we all know that it's, uh, it's the character-building moments in our life uh, which are the challenging moments? And they are the things that uh, have the most impact in, in forming us into the people that we are. In fact, in verse 2 there, uh, P- uh, James sorry, says, sorry, verse 3, he says, you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. It's when a faith is tested that it's proved to be what it, uh, what it is. Uh, testing things makes things stronger. Testing something doesn't weaken it. Uh, in fact, uh, for example, you know, while uh, there are companies fighting to uh, re- release a vaccine for the coronavirus, um, don't you want a vaccine that has been tested and tried? You don't want something that's been released on a whim, but you want something that's been measured uh, and scrutinised uh, and that's proved itself to be valuable. Uh, and the same applies to faith. It's not a test of whether you have faith or not. Uh, it's a test of how strong it is. Uh, it's a proof that it's there. Uh, refine, um, the, the word for testing actually uh, harkens back to um, um, purifying metals like silver and gold, uh, which are tested uh, under extreme levels of heat, but in the end... Uh, at the end of the purifying process, are proved to be pure. And so James wants people who are mature, not weak, not lazy, not sloppy, uh, but people who are mature and steadfast. And then he talks about wisdom. Verse 5, he says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. It's exactly what happens to Solomon. Uh, Do you know the story of Solomon back in uh, the book of Kings? uh, It talks about Solomon, the son of David, uh, who is a new king of Israel, uh, and God meets him at the high place where he's offering sacrifice. God reveals himself to him and says, Solomon, ask me anything you want, and it is yours. And Solomon scratches his head for all of one second and says, God, I am a baby in this role. You've given me this enormous privilege and I do not know what I'm doing. Make me wise. And God is so pleased with that question, uh, with that request. Uh, He guarantees that he will uh, make Solomon to be the wisest man uh, that ever would live. 
uh, and Solomon turns out uh, to to demonstrate uh, all this wisdom. He's not a man without fault. Uh, we know that as well if we read about his life, but he's a man who wrote the book of Proverbs, uh, which is uh, these little tidbits of wisdom gathered throughout uh, his life. James 1 verse 5 says, Ask God if you lack wisdom, and he will give generously to all without reproach. It also makes us think of Jesus' guarantee when he says, uh, Ask my Father of any, for anything and he will give it to you. Uh, won't, don't, don't fathers give good gifts to their children? Won't our Father in heaven give us the Holy Spirit if we ask for it? Won't he give us wisdom if we ask for it? Now, this idea of asking for wisdom, he says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. How do you ask God for wisdom? I think this is best applied uh, not so much in the situation, but as a whole posture. Let me explain what I mean. Uh, sometimes people uh, reach a fork in the road in their life, a situation, and they think, well, I don't know which way to take. I don't know what to do. And so you think of what James says, I'm going to pray for wisdom. I'm going to ask God to reveal the right path to me. And I think that is a good thing to do. That's an excellent way to apply this verse. But there is a problem with that. And the problem is that all, all too often, I think, sometimes uh, people, are, uh, when they pray to God, they're, they're expecting some sort of word from the air uh, or some sort of strong sense uh, that they cannot argue with, that this is the right path. And all too often, in my experience, that isn't the way things play out in that specific situation. I don't always experience a flash of clarity uh, when I would like it. Uh, now, maybe I'm not the only one, but I don't think I am. And this is where I say this verse is best applied not in the situation, but as a posture, where we continually are seeking the Lord's wisdom and practising submission to his ways uh, so that we, uh, we grow in wisdom along the path. And so, yes, frequently pray for wisdom, not just in the moment, uh, but as your posture in prayer. We should, when we pray, regularly confess our lack to God, not just our sins, but our inadequacies. Humble ourselves before Him uh, and, and, and ask Him to make us whole and mature and wise uh, for the day. And there is a way of asking God for wisdom that isn't necessarily to pray. Let me explain what I mean. You don't need to pray to ask God for something. You can still seek God in your actions. You can learn God's ways and his patterns by practicing run-of-the-mill everyday obedience to his commands every day. And so you practice generosity instead of theft because you know what's right in that situation. There's no question or doubt. You restrain forbidden sexual temptations because you know that they're wrong. There's no confusion. You forgive without exception instead of practicing self-righteousness and bearing grudges, because these are the things that the Lord tells us to do. You love your neighbor by practicing kindness. You read God's word to gather insight. And you do these things every day, so that in the practice of regularly uh, adopting this posture of submission to God, you actually, uh, it becomes more and more obvious the way his wisdom applies to the world. You learn his ways and his patterns by living them out. 
So none of these things that I've listed at the end here are, are praying necessarily, but it is still inquiring God because it's still bowing the knee to Him as the source of wisdom in the everyday and it's submission to Him. So we need to ask God, yes, in prayer, but also keep turning to God in, in our lives, in how we live and learn His ways through practice. Adopt this posture of seeking wisdom from God. And finally, James talks about faith. He says this specifically in relation to asking for wisdom. Verse 6, he says, Let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. That person must not suppose he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Now, these kinds of words can actually be quite troubling, I think, if you're a person who, like me, does have questions and doubts in their head that pop up from time to time. It can make you question whether our faith is sufficient or not, especially when in verse 8, James talks about the double-minded man, and it makes you think of someone who asks but then questions whether they're actually going to get the answer or not, and is that the reason I don't get you know, that bolt of clarity because I didn't believe quite enough? But here's the thing for James, the essence of faith is always the source of the faith, not the size of the faith. The essence of faith is in its source, not in its size. The strength of a bridge comes from its construction, not from your mindset when you set out on the bridge. You can't, by your mindset, make a weak bridge strong. And so our faith is in Christ, the strongest bridge. So your mindset is secondary to the source of your faith. Jesus is the one who conquered death and who rules the heavens. There is no greater foundation or stronger bridge. The the essence of our faith is in the source, not in the size of your faith. So the problem of doubt or double-mindedness that James is talking about here, it's not so much a problem of willpower, it's a problem of distraction. It's when someone gives God the nod and says, yeah, I'm a Christian, yeah, I follow him, I believe him, but then listens continuously and practicing listening to the opposing wisdom of the world and their friends and their practices instead. So here's an example that uh, Nat and I experienced in our first year of marriage. We moved into a block of units. There was a lady who lived above us who I can only describe as evil. She was pure wickedness. She had it in for us for the moment uh, we arrived uh, and she treated us like dirt. Um, and it was, uh, we, we lived with this cloud uh, above us for our whole first year of marriage, uh, always treading on eggshells, wondering when the next tirade was going to come our way. Whenever we explained our challenges to our friends, our friends always had the same reaction. Consistently, our friends would begin brainstorming ways that Nat and I could further irritate our neighbour. Now, I'm not going to lie, that was my first instinct as well. I would pace the floors thinking, what can I do next? And unfortunately, I did make genuine blunders along the way. I was a far from perfect neighbour, but we weren't as bad as that. Um, But instead, Nat and I chose a different path. See, our friends were mainly very decent people majority Christian people who were still encouraging us to do what we actually knew was not the right path in that situation. So instead we chose to try and be the best neighbours we could be. 
knowing the whole time it couldn't possibly be enough, we weren't actually going to fix anything, but knowing that it was the right thing to do anyway. We listened to the wisdom of our crucified Lord instead of the wisdom of our actually very decent friends. But that would have been a double-minded thing to do if we had have instead uh, followed our instinct or followed uh, the advice of our friends rather than following the wisdom that we knew came from God to be the best neighbours we could be. See, double-mindedness isn't so much about you know, having questions uh, and probing thoughts in your mind. It's about being distracted and about trying to pull your wisdom from other sources other than God or at least failing to measure these other sources against the wisdom of God. And so we need to have a faith that is undistracted, a faith that measures everything against the wisdom of God, a faith uh, that looks only uh, for salvation from God, a faith that is willing to live an uncomfortable life because our confidence is so sure in Christ uh, that, uh, that it's really character that matters, not comfort after all. See, James doesn't offer a cure for being outnumbered in this book. He doesn't say, oh, do this and you'll, get, you'll find your way out. But he points them to a path to walk on while they're outnumbered. And it's the same path that Jesus led us on, leads us on. A path of quiet integrity, a path of constant character, a path, uh, a perspective that sees good in bad and finds joy in trial because in God's kingdom, the things that matter aren't our comfort uh, but our character uh, and our faith. So friends, I'm looking forward to getting into the rest of James with you. Uh, We're going to pray that God will help us to practice this kind of faith and grow in the wisdom that he promotes now. Let's pray. Lord God, you set us the example uh, with your son Jesus. uh, who He was outnumbered, he was downtrodden, he was misunderstood. uh, But he didn't come in strength, he came deliberately uh, in weakness. And he went about his life and he did what was right, no matter what people said. And God, we are are not a patch on Jesus. We do not have his, uh, his same strength. Um, in that same measure, but we have his strength in us because you have given it to us. Uh, We pray that you will help us uh, to not give in to things like despair, uh, but instead uh, we pray that our despair and feelings of hopelessness will be spoiled by joy uh, when we realise and come to understand that what really matters isn't, isn't our comfort, but it's our character. Uh, We do pray that you will uh, give us wisdom and we pray that you will help us to uh, practice a lifestyle of seeking your wisdom. Uh, We pray, God, that you will uh, make us mature and complete. And we pray that you will increase our faith and help us, uh, while we trust in this, uh, to understand that what really matters in our faith isn't the size of it, but the source of it. Help us uh, to lean fully on Jesus Christ, uh, our Saviour, our Lord and our reward. Amen.